So, Steph, so let's kick off then, yes. shall we? 18, if I'm not mistaken, you were 18 in 1976, is that right? 75. Okay. Yes. So tell me, what were you up to? Well, I had just started my first year at university. I was at University of Miami. And I'd come from an all-girls Catholic boarding school graduating class of 22 into a university of almost 30,000 students. And I hated it. From the day I arrived, I spent exactly two nights in my dorm room. And I had a great friend, Tommy Rogers, who's still a great buddy and throws great Kentucky Derby parties. He had an apartment in Coconut Grove, sort of near the university. So I called him up and I knew he had two bedrooms. So I moved in with him and commuted to school and never bothered to tell my mother I wasn't living in the dorm that she was paying for. Anyway, I lasted through about three months and I just knew I wasn't going to be able to hack that school. So I did tell my mother that I was really unhappy. And through a connection of hers, she got me admitted into American University for the winter semester in Washington, D.C. And they had an amazing film and television department, which is what I wanted to study. And it, because it was the first grant that Sony ever gave to a university was to American U. Oh, wow. Anyway, so I trundled off after Christmas to Washington. And it was life-changing for me. That was just, I had the best time at school. I actually went to school. I enjoyed it. I made some of my best friends in life during that time. And um, so when I went to the school, went to American U, I again went into a dorm room and my roommate was an African-American named Debbie Gooseby. And Debbie was hysterical. She was there on a basketball scholarship and she knew all the guys on the basketball team and they were a hoot and they were all on scholarships and so nobody had much money, but man, we had fun. So university for me was just a blur of parties because my stepfather had a house in a quite a good neighborhood in Washington and he'd given it to me for my university years. And he said, as long as I, you know, had roommates and, and managed the house, I could have it for free. So it had five bedrooms. So I quickly recruited four guys to come and live with me. So it was uh, party central for four years of university. And, uh, in my last year at uni, uh, where I was majoring in film and television, as I said, I was lucky enough to be picked by my professor to work on a project um, which involved about 150 crew. And it was a very big deal because we were filming the Right to Life versus Right to Choose conventions, in, which were both being held at the same time in Cincinnati, Ohio. Right. So this this professor had recruited me to be like the transport accommodation coordinator for this entire crew. And of course I spent most of the money having parties for everybody and I had to have everyone sleeping six to a room, but it was a great experience. And through that, I met um, a well, very well-known American journalist called Marie Torrey. And I guess I must have impressed her because she hired me to go to New York and work with her um, on a pilot for a talk show called Everyone's a Critic. So had you, had, oh, you gra had you graduated at this point? I just had graduated. So I went pretty much, I don't think I'd even graduated. I think I went 
I skipped my graduation and went to work. Right. Uh, and that was a fantastic time. I mean, I was terrified at moving to New York because in the late 70s, New York was just the most dangerous place on earth. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when I got there, I loved it. And plus, it didn't hurt that I was hobnobbing with um, film stars and theater critics and whatnot and going to places like the Russian Tea Room, which was you know, the be-all and end-all of sophistication as far as I was concerned. Um, so this is like 19, anyway, 1979? You're like 20, you're 21 something? 21, 22? Yeah. Yeah, yeah about 1979. Yeah. Yeah, so the, anyway, that was time in New York. And then I had a really bad experience um, after about six or eight months living there. I was attacked and I, it shocked me to my core to the point where I just left my job, packed everything up. And I flew back to my mom in Miami. I was, I was a mess. And my mom was going to Australia where my younger brother was working as, on a, as a jackaroo on a station. And she said, why don't you come with me? So I thought about it for about 32 seconds and said, okay, I'll go. Because I didn't have a job at that point. I quit my job in New York and really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So... Off she and I went to Australia and went and saw my brother out on this amazing sheep station, traveled a bit around Australia, and then got back to Sydney. And that's when I met Peter. How did you meet him? My mother had worked for his father uh, at Cathay Pacific in Hong Kong in 1949, 1950. And she, Peter's mother, had heard that my mother was in town because, you know, Sydney society in those days was the size of a peanut. And she called my auntie up and said, would you ask Lorna if she would like to come for lunch? So my mother called her and said, well, I'm here with my daughter. And Angela, Peter's mother, said that would be lovely and my son will pick you up. And the first time I ever saw Peter, he was driving a, a red, like, Alfa Romeo or something like that. And he had a windsurfer on the top of the car. And honestly, Nick, the first time I saw him, I thought I'm going to marry that man. <laughs> and I'd never, ever said that about anyone before. <laughs> anyway, so met him and we had a couple of nights out on the town. And that was at the tail end of my, I guess it was in Australia for about two or three months. And I made the decision while I was there that I was going back to Washington, D.C., because I still had the house there, and I still had my room in the house, and I was going to try and start over there, because I just, it was time. So when we got back to America, I came to Miami, got my clothes, flew back to Washington, and I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point, but I had a degree in film and television, and I thought, well, maybe advertising would be something I'd be okay at but I couldn't find a job, couldn't find a job. And eventually I got a job as a receptionist at a company called Weitzman Dim. And in DC. I was hopeless at, in DC. I was hopeless as a receptionist. I kept losing people's messages. I never pushed the right button for a hold. I mean, I was the worst receptionist in the history of receptionists, but they must've recognized something of a brain in me because eventually they put me into the production department so I was actually back on the 
film and television thing. I was producing television ads and print ads, and I learned an awful lot. Anyway, so I stayed with that advertising agency for, I don't know, about a year, I guess. And then I got offered a job and a raise and everything else with another agency called Abramson Associates as their like senior production manager. And they had very big accounts. Plus, their office was right next to the Washington Post. And this was just sort of post Watergate. And, you know, Washington was really an exciting place to be. And it was the days of three martini lunches. And, you know, we all had budgets to go wine and dine, you know, camera crews and whatnot, famous directors. So, God, I was living the life in those days. I think it's where I acquired my love of martinis. Um, and the, besides doing some pretty decent work, you know, with, with adverti- advertising, I started the first, this is a little known fact about me, I started the first Washington, D.C. advertising agency softball league. And uh, I got all the different agencies together because they were terrible rivalries, you know, terrible rivalries in those days. And for the first time, people outside of their own agencies started making friends with other agencies. And I think I think it was a good thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know it was because because I did that. I met all the advertising people. So then I got like the prime job of all time with another agency called Rosenthal, Green and Campbell. And they had the Marriott International account. Uh-huh. So I got to How did you move? So all. did they find you, or were you? Were you? Was it again? You would see, you'd see, you'd hear about a, an opening, and then apply to them. Did you? No, that one was they. They I got headhunted twice. Right, right. Um. So, but that one was to me that was the job I really wanted because it meant I could travel, and that was. I mean, I love traveling. I'd grown up traveling, and but being able to travel on my own, on my own nickel or a co- the company's nickel, that was just great for me. So, you know, it wasn't like terribly stressful work shooting an ad for a hotel, but it was sure a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and where? And where? So you're you're like 23, I guess, at this point. 23 or 24, yeah. And what what happened to Peter? Because this is like. You've been in D.C. Oh. for two years or something, were you? <laughs> Peter and I had stayed in touch. And he had, he was dating this girl in Australia named Georgine something. And anyway, then he wrote me and said he was coming to America. On his way, he wanted to go to Alaska to go crab trawling. Don't ask me why. So I said... Okay, well, you know, I'd really love to see you again. And, you know, we'd written, we'd stayed in touch. Yeah. And so he came to America. He stayed with my friend Bunny, who was then living and working in L.A. and uh, working in the film business. And eventually made his way to via Seattle and a thousand other places. I don't know that he ever did go crab trawling. No, he didn't, actually. Anyway, eventually got to Washington, D.C., and it was Halloween night that he arrived in D.C. I guess it must have been 1983, 82. And he came for a month and he ended up staying six. He overstayed his visa and I fell madly in love with him. And we spent Christmas in Miami with my family and blah, blah, blah. He stayed at your place? And then it came time. Sorry? He stayed at your place? 
he stayed with me in Washington okay. and then came with me to Miami um, for Christmas and New Year and, you know, met my parents. We had a really wonderful time. And when Peter had arrived in Washington, I was dating three other men. And I, it, I don't mean to make myself sound like a loose woman, but I'd been dating them all for like two years. And, you know, I'd see one of them on Monday, one on Tuesday, one on Wednesday. And that was just a pattern we'd established because I didn't want to have one boyfriend. I knew I wasn't going to marry any of them. It was just fun. But when Peter arrived in Washington, after about a month, I realized that I didn't want to see these other men. And in fact, it was Thanksgiving weekend after the Halloween. So every, you know, three weeks. And that's when I finally said to Peter, I, I, I think I want to be with you. And he said, I want to be with you. And anyway, it was all a bit of a mess because he had this other girlfriend in Australia. And uh, yeah, so he ended up staying with me until I think May of the following year. And then he had to go to England where he was going to stay with his grandmother, Dorothy Ann, and meet this girlfriend from Australia who was coming to see him. So imagine the tearful farewell at Washington Airport, and it was all, you know, my heart was broken, life was ending, et cetera, et cetera. And a few days later, he called me up and he said, I realize I've made a mistake. He said, I, I want to be with you. So I got on a plane, as you do, and flew to London. And that was, as they say, the beginning. But then... Then I flew back to Washington where I was still working, and he then flew to Hong Kong. So I guess this is 1983. Right. And I went to Hong Kong, I guess, three or four times between that summer and New Year's Eve of 1984 because I said to him, we went to the Bella Vista Hotel in Macau for New Year's Eve 1984. And I said to him, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep leaving and, you know, my heart breaks and I can't get on with my life. So either you need to come back to Washington or I'm going to, I need to come here, but we have to, or we split up. And he said, well, move here then. And I said, okay. <laughs> so kind of not really thinking about the implication of upending my life in America and moving 8,000 miles away to Hong Kong that never even crossed my mind. So I got back from that trip and I called my mom up and I said, mom, I've got news for you. And she said, what? I said, are you sitting down? She said, yes. I said, I'm moving to Hong Kong. Thinking that she would be shocked or perhaps express concern or something. Her reaction was, oh, fabulous, darling. I can't wait to come and shop with you. So with that encouragement, <laughs> I quit quit my job at the advertising agency and I landed in Hong Kong and it was me, four enormous suitcases, one of which was filled solely with shoes and handbags. Anyway, I arrived and I didn't think I was going to go to work. I just thought I'd be a lady of leisure, as it were, uh, not realizing that as an American, I had no right to land. I had you know, three months to be there and then I had to get out. So as the months waned on, Peter said, oh, don't worry, we'll sort it out. The only way I could sort it out was to get a job. But the only way I could get a job was to 
have a uh, an asset, a business asset that wasn't readily found in Hong Kong. So my one business asset was that I was a native English speaker. <laughs> that wouldn't work today in Hong Kong. <laughs> and but I got quite depressed because I went on probably. 25 interviews, everything from hotel PR to advertising to scouting film locations for a company. So I got very depressed because there was just nothing for Nobody was offering me a job. And one day I was sitting up at the cricket club with a friend and I was in the swimming pool. And again, these were the days where you read the help columns, you know, before Internet. And so you read the newspapers and you saw jobs, you know, advertised. And there was a job for a PR account manager with a small firm called Wendy Hughes Limited. I'd never heard of them. You know, it wasn't Helen Knowlton or anything like that. So I wrote off, sent my CV, didn't hear anything, didn't hear anything. And this one day I'm sitting up at the pool at the cricket club. It's about 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon. I've just come out of the swimming pool. My hair is wet. I'm wearing a sarong. And I got a phone call from Wendy Hughes Limited saying, can you come for a job interview? I said, sure, I can be there anytime. And they said, no, can you come right now? And I said, now? I said, I'm in a bathing suit and a sarong. And the woman, her name was Christina. She was the boss's secretary, said, it doesn't matter. Wendy Hughes wants to meet you now. And she's leaving for a trip tonight. And she's got to make a decision. I said, okay. So I went to this interview, seriously, wet hair, bathing suit, sarong. And I met her and I quite liked her. I mean, totally different from me. And she said, I'm interested in you because you've had this big budget experience with Marriott International. And she started to tell me about the company. And one of the accounts they were pitching for was Sheraton Asia Pacific. And uh, the next day, at home, I got three job offers from three different companies all on the same day after, honestly, two months of nothing. Yeah. So that was, like, one of the most exciting days of my life, you know, just knowing that I was sort of going to be able to stay. Where was home? Where, where were you? were living with Peter? Where was home? Not in Sheka, was in it? In Sheka. Oh, it was? Yeah, we were living. Top two stories of someone else, top two stories and rooftop of Mr. and Mrs. Lamb's house, which was six doors down from the house we eventually bought. <laughs> we weren't big on moving far. <laughs> so Wendy, I took the job with Wendy because I just thought it'd be exciting to do the um, Sheraton, like that we were pitching for it at the time. Eventually we got it and I handled that account for a number of years. Um, and one of the other accounts she had just gotten was the Macau Grand Prix Uh and Macau Grand Prix was November and we got the Sheraton account, maybe December, January. And my first assignment for Sheraton was being sent to Beijing because they had just gotten the management contract for a hotel there called the Great Wall. Hmm. So it became the Great Wall Sheraton. And... That was something that, looking back, I mean, I I wish I'd taken more photographs. I wish I'd kept better notes. It was just an amazing time. 
So that was incredible fun, you know, being able to travel around China in the days before China was really open to tourists, Um, you know, and and made some great friends. And through those contacts, really, I got to explore a lot of places that I wouldn't have otherwise seen. I mean, I stayed the night in, in the summer palace at a friend's house and, you know, I got to go up to places up at the edge of the Gobi Desert that I would have never seen. And, you know, it was really just an extraordinary time to be there. And honestly, that's because I took a job working on the Marriott International Hotel account that led me to a job in Hong Kong working on the Sheraton account. Yeah. So, so all, everything all the, has a kick on. So all those years, 84 to 87, were with Wendy Hughes then. That was the company you were working yes. with. Well, yes. she, she must have been so happy to have hired you. Well, you know what? She was a, she was a good egg. Um, and I learned a tremendous amount from her. Mm. And But she also, you know, had a lot of faith in me because she was letting me do things, quite frankly, she shouldn't have. <laughs> I didn't know anything about China. And off she sends me to run the PR for a hotel there. I mean, you think about it. God, what what courage I must have had then. I'm not sure that I would do it today, looking back on it. Although you, you, because of your Far East experience, it wasn't too big a change, I presume. No, but Hong Kong is a different kettle of fish to anywhere else in Asia. Yeah. You know, and it was still a British colony when I moved there. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I first moved there, my first three or four months were tough because Peter had been there for you know, a year or almost a year on his own. And he was that lovely extra man at every dinner party. (laughs) And there were no Americans in those days. I was it. (laughs) And once they found out I wasn't from Texas, everyone lost interest in me. I've got no idea why Texas was such a big deal, but it was. (laughs) And um, so the women weren't particularly nice to me. And I do remember one day, I guess it was just before I got the job, I used to drive into town with Peter and he used to park at the yacht club and I'd get out of the car and go get a taxi to Wan Chai or go off and do things. And uh, anyway, one day I got out of the car and I just burst into tears and Peter said, what's wrong? I said, I just can't do this anymore. I can't be here and not have a direction. And he said, it's going to be better. It's going to be better. And, you know, sure enough, about three days later, I got those job offers. So, he was right, and I'm glad I stuck it out. But there was a point where I thought, I just, I can't stay anymore, you know? Yeah. And uh, I'm glad I did. But those um, those years with Wendy Hughes then, but once you settled into your job and you did the traveling and everything, and that was, so home life was just back in Hong Kong with Peter whenever you're in partying, getting to meet people and stuff, I guess. Oh, my God. They were very, very heady days. They were full of fun and travel. And I remember we, we had a huge overdraft because if somebody would say, oh, we're going to India for a long weekend, we were like, we want to come too. And we you know, buy tickets. We didn't have any money. So we had this huge overdraft. And uh, I guess eventually I got a raise and we were able to pay it off. But, you know, we really lived every minute that we could. And because he was traveling too, you know, the times that we were together, we just had so much fun. Yeah. Um, and but then a big thing for us happened in uh, I got 1986 
Peter and I had just returned from a holiday somewhere. Anyway, neighbor came to us and said, there's a house for sale on the corner. Oh, wow. And so Peter and I said, really? So we pretty much dumped our bags and ran down to see the house. And it's the house we had both always loved. It was a bit decrepit, bit run down, had a chain link fence around it, et cetera, et cetera. But you could see the potential. We got in touch with the owner, who was a spinster, whose father had built three houses together, one for each of his daughters. So it was our house and the two adjoining houses. And her name was Miss Louie. And Miss Louie was very traditional, old Hong Kong Chinese. And we were very respectful of her. She was lovely. She was like tiny. She was the size of, you know, a six-year-old. She was so little. And we went and we had tea with her several times. And anyway, she wanted quite a bit for the house. Uh, I mean, to us, it seemed like, you know, all that we'd never get that much money together. But we just thought about it, thought about it. We went to the bank. And then my mother came to visit. And my mother went down and spoke to Miss Louie. And the next thing you know, Miss Louie's agreed not only to a reduced price, um, but she's turned away another offer at a higher price because apparently my mother said my daughter and her fiancé, not that we were engaged, will love love this house and they'll have their family in this house and they'll live in this house and, and they'll make this a happy home. Oh, my word. And she took that to heart. So my mother loaned us the money for the down payment. And um, we got a loan from the bank to do renovations, and it should have been finished in like, you know, six months. But in true Hong Kong style, it was like 18 months later. We finally moved in. Um, but we were living just down the street, so every day we'd go and see what was happening to our house. Oh, well, fantastic. And uh, in 1987, it was my birthday, and... I burst into tears again on the way to work. I didn't cry very much. And Peter said, what's wrong? And I said, I'm going to be a spinster. And he said, what? I said, oh, I'm going to be a spinster. I'm not married. And I'm going to be 30 next year. And I'm going to be a spinster. Little did I know that my mother and two of my aunties had flown into Hong Kong because they knew he was going to propose to me that day. And I didn't know. I had no idea. And he called me up. I used to do, one of the accounts I had at Wendy Hughes was IHT, International Container Terminal or something. So I used to do a lot of aerial photography for them. <clears throat> and Peter was working for a container company called Extra. So Peter called me at work. This is the day before for my birthday, I think. And Peter called me at work and said, um, listen, I need your help. I, I have to go and take, I have to do some aerial stuff. Can you help me get in touch with that helicopter guy and the photographer because I need to. And I said, Peter, I'm really, really busy at work. I've got a press conference on. He said, I really need you to do this. And everybody at my company knew what he was doing. So my boss said, don't worry about the press conference stuff. You, you help Peter. I'll, I'll take care of it. You know. And I meet Peter at the helicopter place and we get into the helicopter, and I'm looking around for the photographer, and there's no photographer. And I said to Peter, aren't we waiting? The helicopter takes, aren't we waiting for the photographer? And he said, no, we'll just have a little short ride. He's running a bit late. And I'm still totally oblivious to what we're doing. 
anyway, we get up in the air and we actually flew over our house under construction, which was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and after we did that, he, the pilot handed him a champagne bucket. He popped a cork, got down on one knee. In the helicopter. Offered me, in the helicopter and offered me a ring. And I was shocked. I was thrilled beyond belief. And he didn't even say, will you marry me? I just said, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you know? um, and we had champagne. Even the helicopter pilot had champagne, which you probably shouldn't have. Um, and eventually landed. And needless to say, I was on cloud nine. I mean, I, I don't remember much about that. Um, and then the next day, Peter said to me, it, was, it must have been a Saturday the next day because I wasn't at work. And he said, you need to get dressed up. I'm taking you somewhere special for your birthday. And he put a blindfold on me. And we ended up at the Regent Hotel. And he'd organized a surprise birthday dinner for me. But really, it was to celebrate our engagement. And there was my mother and my auntie, and both of my aunties. And it was just a special, special, special night. Amazing. Um, that was a that was quite an incredible uh 12 months and in the run-up to your 30th birthday you got proposed to you got married you left your company left the company you're with and started your own company and you and, and we moved into and we moved into our new house and you moved into <laughs> wow what a 12-month period that was i think i think that's uh it's just so fantastic to hear you recounting everything steph and you know i'm sure Everyone's going to love listening to this. But can we stop recording you? We can stop. <laughs> <laughs>